Welcome to the Construction User 2.0 from the Association of Union Constructors. In this podcast, we explore the latest labor trends, industry insights, and important issues in the world of construction. Join us for conversations with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and innovative visionaries as we discuss how we are building the world of tomorrow. Okay, hello, welcome everyone to the Construction User 2.0. Today's guest is uh, Sean McGarvey, the president of the North America's Building Trades Unions. From Glazer's Local Union 252 to president of North America's Building Trades Unions, our guest has seemingly done it all. From championing women in the workforce, transitioning veterans into the trades, bolstering apprenticeship programs, strengthening pensions, managing programs across the entirety of the industry, all while being a husband, a father, and a grandfather. He has been a monumental presence in union construction for over 40 years, focused on training the builders of the future, all while fighting for the current union members across the continent. The leader of an organization over 3 million strong, welcome NAB2 President Sean McGarvey. Thank you. It's great to be here. I like to start with kind of a a ridiculous, silly question. Uh, What's the last song you got stuck in your head? Like the song that you just couldn't break free of? Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. I would probably say uh, Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. Very good answer. And you know, that, not an unpleasant song to have stuck in your head, really. You know, you could do much worse. So one of the things that we hear a lot about right now, whether it's in the news, whether it's about construction or not construction, it's, you know, it's about labor and the labor shortage and the, the problem of finding and retaining good talent. And you know, being the president of NAB2, labor is a big part of it. And I was wondering what you guys had kind of been experiencing and seeing with the labor shortage as it is so-called. Well, I actually just had some conversation with some of my team about this today because one of the misconceptions is in the construction industry, single family housing makes up more than 50% of the industry when it comes to people engaged in construction. And, you know, going back to the Great Recession, the depression in the construction industry of 08, 9, 10, 11, 12, where housing practically shut down, a lot of that workforce uh, left uh, and never evolved into the higher levels of construction in, you know, like commercial, commercial, institutional, uh, heavy industrial. And they still are suffering uh, quite a bit in that portion of the industry because it's the bottom rung of the industry. It's the lowest paid it's the, the worst conditions. It's the, uh, you know, rife with uh, abuses of the workforce. A lot of the workforce, it's not, you know, doesn't come uh, domestically. So when you get to the uh, institutional, commercial, uh, heavy industrial portion, you know, we are not seeing massive problems with uh, finding enough skilled workforce today. That does not mean that we are not concerned in working towards making sure we're as prepared as we can be uh, when some of this uh, investment that the federal government and the private economy uh, are making start to make you know real demands on huge numbers of skilled craft professionals. So uh, a lot of time is spent by each institution that's affiliated with the uh, with NAPJU on their own plans and programs of how to recruit and maintain. Uh, a workforce to meet the demands of our contractor partners and our customers. And they vary across crafts, across regions, uh, how they're approaching it. And it's, you know, it's a difficult balance because you project what the needs are in a local geographical area when it comes to a particular craft. And 
The only thing that's predictable about the construction market in the United States and Canada is it's unpredictable. You see major projects get off the ground, get started, and then all of a sudden there's a situation where a project stops. I know that there's a, a major project that just uh, shut down in Vegas this week. Lots of different reasons for stuff like that. A lot of it has to do with financing. It's hard to predict exactly what the needs are going to be, but our, our unions in, in NABTU uh, across different geographies you know, are giving a, a, a real effort to make sure that they take advantage of this opportunity, support their contractor partners, and provide what the people that are making these capital expenditures, whether it's uh, federal, state, and local government or private industry, to give them what they want and what they need, which is a an abundant, safe, productive, professional craft workforce. You know, there's some really cool and fascinating stuff in there. I. I appreciate all that. I'd never thought of it. So many of the people I've talked to have said exactly what you said. You know, yeah, I started when I was 16 or 17 building houses over the summer or I, you know, and they, they get started in that realm before kind of transitioning up. So I guess I'd never really thought of, yeah, the great housing recession when everything kind of shut down would certainly put a bubble in the pipeline, not necessarily at the, the higher levels, but at those that kind of entry level thing. And it did for us. It did for us. Excuse me. It did for us in in Nabchu and our affiliate unions also because, you know, we went from, you know, a, a situation where we had phenomenal employment and opportunity for our contractors and our members to, to you know, practically overnight, massive unemployment. I can remember two states that always stick in my mind is Nevada and Michigan, where we had 50% unemployment uh, across the crafts in those two states. So when you have that, that level of unemployment, certainly you're not feeding the pipeline to bring more people in. So you lose a couple of years during that process and, you know, eventually that catches up to you where there, there should have been 100, 150, 200 more people in, in your union who are now, you know, uh, uh, you know, well into their journey person status that, that never got there because they weren't taken in because it just wasn't work for them. It wasn't work for the existing membership. So that catches up with us too, but uh, more predominant in the, in the single family housing uh, sector. So the, I mean, obviously we're talking everything from 2008 to then we had the, would you say obviously the housing boom, the housing collapse kind of of 2008 was specifically about people building things. How did COVID and, and other, you know, the shutdown, did that affect the, the construction heavily? Are we seeing res results to that as well? Yeah, but it's, but it's not as, you know, when it comes to the intake side, the uncertainty uh, lasted a, a much shorter period of time than the Great Recession, right? We went from on March 13th, 2020, from, you know, pretty much full employment to 60% unemployment over a weekend. But over the next, you know, three or four months, we put the vast, vast majority of those people back to work as, as we went state to state to get certified as essential to keep the infrastructure moving in this country. Uh, to do everything that, that our members did heroically, by the way, from building temporary field hospitals to temporary morgues, to keeping the power on, refueling nuclear plants, uh, doing the maintenance to keep hospitals online, you know, putting in and converting regular hospital rooms to ICU units to get all the prerequisite piping uh, that was needed to keep people alive. Um, it was, you know, like I've said many, many times, you know, quite honestly, in the 100 and uh, I guess it's almost the 114-year history, uh, if I got the numbers right, it's 15-year history of NAB2. It's our proudest moment. Our members did that. Our members went out there, 
our members were just like everybody else. We weren't quite sure what was going on. We weren't sure, you know, what happens if we bring this disease into our house. And, you know, they wound up sleeping in their cars. They wound up sleeping in their garages. It was amazing the work that they did. Uh, they put country first. Um, and, and like I said, it's, it's as proud a moment as the, the Billy Trades has had in its history. Those members that went out there across these United States and across Canada and did that every day. No, it, it really, it was a time of great uncertainty for kind of everyone. I don't think anyone felt real confident in their, uh, in, in the status quo there for, for a while. So this question, obviously there are 14 unions in, in NAB2, and that makes it a very, you know, 14 different answers. And obviously you already said the, uh, the only thing that is sh the certain is the uncertainty, but how is the pipeline of, of work and the apprenticeships and the, the, the labor supply now? Well, the pipeline of work looks tremendous. Of course, we've got uh, particularly uh, the NMA and talk. We've got a tremendous amount of uh, battery plants that are either under construction or getting ready to start construction. We are uh, getting ready and starting on the first uh, couple of uh, fab plants uh, that are massive projects uh, in Ohio and in New York, out in, uh, in Texas, in, in New Mexico and, and Arizona, Washington State. We've got small modular reactors. We just had our first technology, uh, the technologies that applied for NRC approval, gotten it. We have uh, hydrogen hubs that the DOE is going to shortlist uh, down to probably 10 to 13 and make awards You know, in June. Um, all these projects and all those different technologies you know, are all multi-billion dollar projects and they require, you know, you know, at least 1,500 quality skilled craftspeople for whether it's a small modular reactor, and they really don't know because we haven't built one yet, the, the exact workforce numbers that we're going to have. But we have experience building these fabs and, you know, you're talking about 7,000 7, people we're going to have at the Intel site in Columbus and, uh, you know, and same thing with uh, the Micron project up in Syracuse, New York, seven, 8,000 people there. I mean, there's two projects with, you know, almost 20,000 skilled craft professionals on. So, you know, we're working hard. We built partnerships over the years through our apprenticeship readiness programs with national groups like uh, Youth Build and Urban League to target populations that haven't had uh, as many opportunities to get in the unionized industry. Uh, we've recently, within the last two weeks, got a $20 million grant in a partnership with our Trade Futures 501c3, who's handling our apprenticeship readiness programs and other programs to uh, make the construction industry more attractive to, to groups that haven't had a, always as easy a time accessing. Um, and we're partnering with Urban Lake, where we're going to start in four states and expand out uh, through that grant to, to target the, the populations that we want to recruit and where we have the expertise on the training side through our magnificent training infrastructure that each of our unions has across these United States, 1,600 training centers in excess of spending over $2 billion a year of our money and then partnering with somebody like the Urban League who does the wraparound services because things have to be different. You know, uh, we've spent a lot of effort and a lot of time and are having success with recruiting more women into the industry. But they require different kinds of support to be in the construction industry and more importantly, to stay in the construction industry. We are doing uh, two pilot programs on uh, childcare through our Trade Futures uh, operation, one in Milwaukee and one in New York City, because one of the real problems we have with men are uh, responsible in many households 
for lots of the duties required uh, for the family, but predominantly it's still women. And in order to in order to get people into the construction industry or to keep them in the construction industry when they decide to start a family, childcare is a is, is a gigantic issue. It's a cost issue. It's a quality issue. It's an access issue. And you know it got worse from the pandemic because many many childcare facilities went offline. And then we have a particular problem when it comes to childcare in the construction industry is that, you know, not many childcare providers open their doors at 4 or 4.15 or 4.30 in the morning. And not many of them keep them open until 7, 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night if necessary because, you know, with the seasons, our, our industry likes to start early to beat the heat, keep people safe. Uh, but then, you know, sometimes you, you, you know, you got trucks to unload, you got a tower crane you're working with, you know, you got a concrete pour going on. You have to be there. You can't, oh, I got to go pick up my kids. I got to go. We, that can't happen, right? You got to get that concrete uh, set and finished. And that requires a completely different look at how childcare is delivered for the people that we're trying to target, 50 plus percent of the population, women in the United States, in the construction industry. We think uh, we've done a good job of increasing the number of women in our trades over the last 10 years. We've doubled the number from 2% to 4%, but that's the bad news. It's only up to 4%. We need to do much, much more and get, get that number much, much higher. And, and you know, they're uh, really uh, a group of people that make fantastic craftspeople that are dedicated to their work. They're diligent, they're smart, they're strong. So there's all kinds of accommodations uh, outside the job uh, on a daily basis that we have to make if we're really serious about this. And there's all kinds of accommodations, quite honestly, on the job site that construction owners and um, you know the people that are putting up capital that I can speak for NAB to, we're going to push much, much harder on what we think uh, needs to be done, the extra uh, dollars that some are not used to spending that need to be spent. If people want to complain about uh, access to enough skilled craft people to make their investment a going concern. Well, there's things that they can do and they need to do to make their job sites more accommodating. And we're going to press on that. So you, you touched on a couple of things in there that I, I, I wanted to ask about. So, you know, we have over a hundred mega projects, over a billion dollar projects. And like you said, some are 7,000 people, some we don't quite know, but these aren't barn raisings. This isn't a weekend job. These are, these are careers. These are, this is something that these men and women are going to be on for, for months, years, decades. I mean, this is something that's going to continue to need ongoing, non-temporary type of maintenance, correct? Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of uh, what helps us when the capital spend's not out there, is the ability to put our people and our contractors to work maintaining the infrastructure that we built. And when it comes to some of the, these new technologies uh, and the rapid change in the technology requires constant up, uh, you know, uh, uh, changeovers to keep up with the technology changes, you know, think, think battery plants. We know what we're doing now. We don't know what we're going to do three years from now. As quickly as the technology moves, it's incredible. So not only building them, but maintaining them. So we're going to we're need to grow uh, uh, width-wise and we need to grow height-wise when it comes to the amount of people that we have in the unionized construction industry available to take care of all that infrastructure. So let me not necessarily change gears, but segue to a few weeks ago, you know, you hear this all the time about how unions are, you know, anti-competitive or that, you know, President Biden's thing last year, but with the infrastructure bill, not the infrastructure bill, I'm sorry, the executive order on, on PLAs is, is anti-competitive to the small business, the non-union shops. 
But as I take a look, you know, I, I don't think any there's anything non-competitive about the union houses that I have interacted with. Why union construction? Why is union construction the way to go in a world that you can get these non-union shops versus hiring union? Talk to me a little bit about the competitive and, and why union construction should be being considered by the owners. Well, I, 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 a great leader in our movement, I'm told, he didn't tell me directly, but I'm told he used, uh, he used us in a meeting with a, a giant EPC contractor that, you know, we don't particularly have a, a real relationship with. And he, they asked, they posed him the same question. And he's, he had a great answer that I think really sums it up. And he says, well, if you want to get a, if you want to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac in L.A. and you're from New York, your expectation is that Big Mac's going to taste the same in L.A. as it does in New York. And in the unionized construction industry, the way our, the way our training is delivered, okay, is consistent across the United States and, for that matter, across North America. So you know what you are getting. Okay, you can count on the productivity, the skill level of people who have gone through our training programs and our upgrading programs. And that brings surety and predictability when you're spending uh, in excess of a billion or billions of dollars. You know, these are people that a lot of them are in publicly traded companies. Uh, if things don't go well, that senior leadership is on the hook for that. And they better be able to answer the questions when they get in front of that board of directors about why a project went sideways. And the answer to it can't be that we tried to we tried to shave points on the quality of the people that we hired to do the work. The answer should be that if they were in a, if they were in a, an acquisition phase, they they would hire Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or one of the top banks to help them with that. If they were in a litigation situation, they would hire the top litigation firms in the country. When they're in a capital spend on capital construction, they certainly should hire the best. Uh, professional contractors with the prerequisite uh, workforce with the skills necessary for that investment to, to, to be a smart investment and to pay dividends, not only to the board of directors, but the stockholders. So they're the kinds of questions that they have to answer. And on top of that, when they go to finance uh, 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 projects, okay, these some of these mega projects, you know, the banks that are lending that money ask some of those same questions. And it, it better not be if the, if the thing goes sideways that you, you made a, a, a decision, okay, of how you were going to save a few bucks by hiring a less skilled workforce. And now you're, what's the, I love the saying that I think it's still a saying of, of talk is the, the poor taste of quality, you know, their tagline. It's true. So I think we're in, we're in good position because of the, you know, the forefathers from the contractors and, and the unions for the last hundred years have built up our, our training infrastructure and put us in a position where we can produce the people with the skill sets that are needed in the, you know, in this evolving technologically efficient construction market. We can hit the job running. We can train up to specific, and we're doing a lot of this now, to the specific needs of the owners with these technologies and bring them right into our training centers and, and do that training. Nobody else has that infrastructure. So you would be, you would be, if you don't at least consider us, you would not you, you would not be doing your, your due diligence and I wouldn't be on the want to be on the hook if I was somebody that made this uh, decision and and if it all goes bad I have to answer the questions of why preeminent group of contractors and craft professionals weren't even considered 
when you made a decision on labor strategy? You know, I've asked that question a lot over the the last year and a half that I've been here, and to people of all levels, from the bot, from owner clients, there, that is probably one of my favorite answers. That's solid. It's it's the Big Mac. It's why wouldn't you you want a you want consistency, but yeah, you also need to know you're doing getting your best. That's I like that. Well, then, kind of wrapping up. You know, I mentioned a second ago the infrastructure bill, and as well as you know, the NAB two was was you know involved and instrumental in the in the executive order for PLAs and and other things. What's next? You guys have you have all these really big wins, but those are right behind us. What's what's right around the corner? Well, I think I think what's really uh, the most important things that we're working on that are next is is uh, a uh, getting National Apprenticeship Act done protecting registered apprenticeship, uh, all the things we talked about that give us the ability to provide uh, these skilled craft professionals. And something that uh, almost everybody in the industry can agree on is permit reform. We're in a situation, and when people think about you know the, the term permit reform, they always think you're talking about energy. And yes, it affects energy, just but it affects every aspect of the construction industry. And when you, you know, on all the things I mentioned earlier, you notice I never mentioned the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, okay, that $1.2 trillion. All, the, all these other things were outside of that. Well, it's just as hard to permit a bridge as it is to permit a pipeline. Yes. So these things have a dramatic cost escalation effect on infrastructure and a financing effect over time where costs are driven up as you're waiting to get all the ducks in a row from uh, federal, state, local bodies who are all involved in this process, this arcane process, dries up the cost of construction. And sometimes at the end of the day, and we see it all the time, you know, makes the project cost not sustainable and they abandon the project. That needs to be dealt with. Now, I, I think there's a, a, a good chance a confluence be the administration understands it and supports it because look, you, you can't, I don't care if it's offshore wind or or it's uh, solar or, or onshore wind or, or any of the renewables. It's uh, small modular reactors, uh, nuclear that uh, has no greenhouse gas emissions and is base load generation that you can count on no matter what the weather is. All those things are, are susceptible to the permitting process. And I think enough uh, people in the Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, and in the administration recognize if we're ever going to really benefit the most that we possibly can as a country from the investments that we made, streamlining and not not equivocating on, you know, our responsibility to protect this environment in, in, in this uh, global climate change that we're all dealing with, making sure that we're, we're not uh, uh, shaving any points at all on that end of it, but making it reasonable, predictable, that here's the start, here's the finish, and if you do all the things you're supposed to do, uh, you meet all the requirements, you should get issued a permit so you can move forward with capital spend. So I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. We're working hard at it with all the parties. There was some uh, bill introduced uh, last session in the Senate by Senator Manchin. The Republican uh, House just put out their bill. They're uh, more wish list than, than just permitting reform, but uh, it, it's a start and there's a consensus around the permitting reform. That's a really, really important piece, or, or we'll be leaving uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that have been uh, appropriated for lots of this infrastructure, the Inflation Act, through tax credits and, and other things that'll never be used because the projects weren't viable because of the permitting process they had to go through. We have to get that right. That is a solid uh, a future goal that we need to fix because that changes everything. 
Well, Ms. McGarvey, thank you so much for your time. If, if you, unless, is there anything else you want to just add or say that we should be working on, changing, fixing? How do we move union construction? No, I mean, I, 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 we have such a great relationship with talk, and we're doing more and more closer collaboration on lots of issues, these and others, to try to find ways to partner and, and advance the cause of union construction. And I think, you know, uh, the one thing that I, I said to my my um, assembly last year, that getting an infrastructure bill, now a CHIPS bill and an Inflation Act bill, we're talking about, you know, all in all, somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 trillion worth of construction. And at our conference this year, the theme of this conference is the, uh, the infrastructure generation. Because the people that we need to recruit, the people that we need, we need to train, the people we need to deploy, you know, when they look back 10, 20, 25, 30 years from now, it'll be these acts of Congress and this administration with the support of groups like TALK and NABTU to help get them across the finish line. These investments that created this, this uh, gigantic, not a pathway, but a runway to the middle class through the organized construction industry. So we need not screw it up. We need to figure out new ways to work together. We need to figure out ways to accommodate different points of view. And we need to be understanding of each other. And we need to create win-win-wins, which we're good at doing, uh, but we need to do more of it. So I'm excited about where we're at. I'm excited about where we're going. I'm excited about our relationship with talk. And the sky's the limit for the infrastructure generation. It's about, it's about the onboard with all of us. No, I, I agree. And thank you for bringing up the NAB2 Ledge Conference. We will absolutely be there. We were just talking about it earlier in a meeting today about how excited we are, what a great event it was last year, and what we're excited to see what happens this year and what uh, crazy surprises there will be. Want to uh, wink at me and no one else is listening, I promise. Any, any, uh, anything people can uh, be excited to hear about? Any surprise guests or uh, people showing up at NAB2's Ledge Conference this year? We're going to, I think people will be very pleased. We'll have some old friends. We'll have some new friends. We'll 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 show uh, tremendous respect to to a friend who has been a, a friend and supporter of the unionized construction industry for for his or her whole career. Uh, so it'll be a, a, an exciting couple of days, and and we'll get our our business done up on the hill together, shoulder to shoulder with our contractor partners, moving national apprenticeship back and moving uh, permitting reform. And I think uh, we'll also. We'll do our day of service uh, the day before the conference starts at some of the places around this town uh, that I'm so proud of our members who come into town and, and uh, you know, get a little downtime and not are heading off to a golf course or sightseeing, but they're actually bringing their work boots and helping us show the people in this town, the policymakers and the residents that we're not takers, we're givers too in the building trades. So uh, it'll be a, a fun three days, I think. No, I, and I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to be there again this year. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again, NAB2 Ledge Conference, uh, April 25th of this year. April just next 24th, month. 25th, 26th, yep. 20, yep, awesome. April 20, uh, NAB2 Ledge Conference, April 24th, 25th, 26th of uh, this year. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. You too, thanks and uh, be safe out there. You've just listened to the Construction User 2.0 podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. Don't forget to subscribe to get all future episodes of what is going on and what is current in the union construction and maintenance industry. 